Well, my name's Stephen. I'm one of the pastors here, and happy to be here with you today. You know, I've been thinking a lot about passion lately. Have you ever thought about what you're passionate about? Are you just one of those people that naturally talks for hours about the things that you're passionate about? I think most of us are those types of people, by the way. Uh, for me, one of those things is sports. It's going to be no shock if you've talked to me very much that I love sports. I love baseball, football, and basketball, and I will talk for hours about those. And I'm kind of a history nerd. So like the historical aspect of sports really gets me going. So if you want to talk, just talk to me about, you know, football in the 60s or baseball in the 20s, and then I'm with you right there. So I have, I have, different, I have favorite teams from different eras. I grew up in Ohio in the 80s and 90s. And so for baseball, my team is the Cleveland Indians. I know, I know, Boston fans, you can feel sad for me because now we are the holders of the longest streak without a World Series championship. Everybody else has won that battle except for us. And I think we even gave away one of those, right, to the Cubs? Not a great year, but I loved the Indians in the 90s. That was my team. I could name every player at every position. I'll just name a couple because I'll spare you, but I could go by years, even if we wanted to, starting lineups by years. Jim Tomey, Albert Bell, Manny Ramirez before he came to Boston and became a diva, Charles Nagy, Sandy Olimar Jr., Omar Vizquel, Robbie Olimar, Kenny Lofton. I'll stop there. My wife's saying it's too much, too many names. Uh, I even know when I had my appendix taken out by an Indians game. It was 1997, game six of the World Series, in the eighth inning when the anesthesiologist put me under. It's pretty epic, right? It's pretty good. I can dictate my life according to when they lost. It's amazing. Uh, and I love teams by different eras as well. For me, it really doesn't get any better than the Brooklyn Dodgers. Yes, the Brooklyn Dodgers. I'm talking 1940s, 1950s. These guys were gritty, they were quirky, and they went outside the box. They were the first team to have African-American players. They thought differently than everybody else did. They were a really fun team. I've read all the books about them. I've watched all of the documentaries. I've just paid so much attention to them. It's kind of ridiculous, the amount of time that I've spent. Uh, Jackie Robinson, Pee Wee Reese, they even have cool names, right? Uh, Preacher Rowe, what's not to like about this team? Roy Campanella, Don Newcomb, Carl Ferrillo. Uh, I'll stop at that point. Duke Snyder, Gil Hodges, there we go. I love those guys. They went to the World Series five times in about a seven-year stretch, and they only won the last time. I think I have a thing for the lovable loser type, if you haven't noticed. My teams tend to be the underdogs. I could talk about this for hours, but that's what happens when you're passionate about something, right? So I grew up in a church that was really big on the passion, like really big on the passion. We would have services that would go, it was regular for the services to last three hours, and it wasn't unheard of for them to last five hours. Uh, during that time, worship usually lasted for somewhere between one to two hours. Uh, and we didn't worship in kind of a stationary standard vineyard pose with one hand in your pocket, one hand in the air. We worshiped by like doing aerobics. 
I mean, we were looping the sanctuary. We were jumping up and down, dancing all over the place, hands up, on the floor, stretched out, on your knees, kind of all over the place. It was like jumping jacks for an hour and a half at our church growing up. Now, as you can imagine, this was great because people really loved Jesus. They were really excited and they were willing to express it. But if you were a new person at the church, this was like terrifying. Like, do I have to do that? <laughs> like, are they going to hand me a flag next? I don't even know what's going on. I mean, they had swords. It was terrifying for new people. Terrifying. <laughs> for instance, my best friend invited his girlfriend, who is a lovely girl who grew up in a Nazarene church, to come to a service. So we gave her our standard, uh, this is our church, and this is what's going to happen during a church service talk, which usually lasted between 30 minutes to an hour, because it just needed to. Um, and so we gave, her, we gave her the conversation. She was like, okay, cool. She came. 45 minutes into worship, she's fine. And then it happened. Then the person running the service jumped up, grabbed the microphone, ran over to the drummer and said, beat the drums like it's the devil's head. <laughs> and as you can imagine, my friend and I wanted to crawl under the nearest but yet farthest away rock that we possibly could because we were terrified. We're like, oh no, oh no, this is not gonna translate well. And her face just went five shades of color. I mean, it went from like pale as a ghost to bright red, and then she just looked at us with her mouth open, like, what in the world is happening? Uh, I, I was nice, and I allowed them to have some nice quality alone time after the service. I felt like I didn't need to be a part of that conversation. Uh, so I, <laughs> I happily skipped away afterwards and left him to deal with that conversation. It was a bit intense for new people, to say the least. And you know, that's one of the things that drew me to the vineyard when I first started going to a vineyard church. It was the fact that I, I went there and I noticed people were really passionate about Jesus. But it wasn't weird. And I appreciated that. I didn't have to give an hour-long talk before the service and an hour-and-a-half-long talk after the service about what we did. People were able to engage with people, and they felt kind of normal. It was like, okay, they have different priorities. They have different passions, but they're doing normal life. I can understand where they're coming at with this. I understand where Jesus fits into their life and how that would look for me. And that was huge for me coming from the church that I grew up in. And I knew that at that point that it was something that I wanted, and it was a way that I wanted to live. I wanted to be able to invite people into that type of a space when I invited them to come to church, when I invited them to come and know Jesus. And this morning, I want to talk about that. I want to talk about our DNA as Vineyard Hopkinton, that we're a church that welcomes all types of people and that shares our passion for Jesus and yet does it in a normal, everyday sort of way, that we're inviting people to walk alongside of us, not to run around with us carrying a sword, that does it at a more reasonable pace for, the, for newcomers. We want to welcome people into our space because we want people to come to know Jesus. So will you pray with me, and then we're going to read about two unlikely friends in the book of Acts. 
Jesus, we just say that you're welcome here to come and to do what you want to do. We just thank you for your presence. We thank you for what you're wanting to speak to our hearts, and we ask that you will speak to us. Lord, I just pray that today that you will point out to us the ways that you're working in our lives, the ways that you've changed us, and the stories of how you've changed us that we can share with others. Make us aware of what you've done in our lives, of the ways that you've wrecked us with your love so that we can welcome others to be wrecked by your love as well. Let that be a reality for us. We just say, come Holy Spirit and be here in Jesus' name. Amen. So Acts 10, if you have a Bible, feel free to open up to that. We have Bibles in the front and in the back if you want to grab one of those at any time. I want to look at the story of Peter and Cornelius. They're two guys that on a normal day never would have met. Uh, it's surprising, unlikely, it's culturally faux pas. It has all the good makings of a story, right? So we're going to begin in chapter 10, verse 1. Read this with me. It says, at Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. One day at about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. An angel, of the, an angel of God came to him and said, Cornelius. And Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord? The angel answered, Your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as an offering before God. Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Peter. He's staying with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. Now, Cornelius is about as abnormal of a Roman centurion as you're going to come across. Just the words Roman centurion bring to mind an image of somebody who looks much different than Cornelius. Because starting off with, Cornelius worships the Jewish God. That's what it means when it's saying that he's God-fearing which that's super abnormal for a Roman. Romans at that point would worship somewhere between 20 to 50 gods. And it all depended on kind of what they needed at the moment. If they needed a better job, they prayed to a certain one. If they needed wisdom, they prayed to another one. If they needed money, they prayed to another one. There was a God for everything. And so the fact that Cornelius is worshiping one God is abnormal. And then there's the fact that he's a career military guy who does this. And he's in the city of Caesarea. Caesarea is a really unlikely place to come to know Jesus. It's the Roman capital of Israel. It's pretty much the most hated city by the Israelites. Uh, they want nothing to do with Caesarea because it is so thoroughly Romanized uh, that they feel like there's no shred of kind of Jewish heritage left in it, nothing for them. It's kind of a big sign of the oppression that they feel from the Roman government. And so he's a career military guy who is in Caesarea. That means that he's kind of, he's up there in the charts. Uh, he, he's been successful in his life. And yet, instead of being a power-hungry, kind of oppressive sort of ruling soldier, it says that he's generous to the poor. That's like an easy thing for them to call out. That's the thing that catches God's attention when he sends this angel to him. And here we see the Holy Spirit working in his life in really surprising ways. 
You know, one of the main things that we can learn from this story is that the Holy Spirit is at this very moment working in the lives of people who would surprise the daylights out of you. People you would never expect to be interested in Jesus, the Holy Spirit's talking to and working in their hearts. In the eyes of Peter, a good kind of standard Jewish man from Galilee, you would never, God would never send an angel to Cornelius. And yet, he does. And the crazy thing is that at the exact same time that Cornelius gets this angel, Peter gets a vision from God in a town miles away telling him that Cornelius is going to send men to come and see him. Look at verse 17 with me. While Peter was wondering about the meaning of the, the vision, the men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was and stopped at the gate. They called out, asking if Peter was staying there. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Peter, three men are looking for you. Get up and go downstairs. Don't hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. It's like a Holy Spirit doorbell. It's kind of funny. He's just like gazing off into nowhere. Oh, Peter went down and he said to the men, I'm the one you're looking for. Why have you come? The men replied, we've come from Cornelius, the centurion. He's a righteous and God-fearing man. He's respected by all the people. I just want to pause there because that's the funniest statement you could ever say about somebody. Respected by all the people. Like, you know that this dude's being paid by Cornelius. Like, if I told you, yes, Rob is respected by all the people in Hopkinton, you'd be like, mm, doubtful, because all the people in Hopkinton don't even know him. And yet, Cornelius, all the Jewish people respect him. A holy angel told him to ask you to come to his house so that he could hear what you have to say. And then Peter invited the men into his house to be his guests. The next day, Peter started out with them, and some of the believers went along. So God sends this vision, which I skipped over because it's, it's long and I didn't want to go into all the details, but it's basically a vision saying, don't be surprised when I send you to reach people that you kind of prior thought were not good, that I didn't ever want to reach, Gentiles. And then these men show up, and God tells them, go down, answer the door. And Peter takes his first big step. He invites them into his house. For a Jewish man to invite Gentiles into his house was a pretty public act of welcome that wouldn't have happened very often. So he's beginning to step out. He's saying, okay, God, I'll do the things that you're placing in front of me. And Peter was ready for it because the Holy Spirit had already prepped him. He had already told him what he was getting ready to do. And you know, friends, if you're willing and you're waiting, the Holy Spirit will use you to reach people that you would never expect that he wanted to reach. Peter was praying. He was open to the leadership of God, to what Jesus, where Jesus wanted to send him. And Jesus came and he did this. The Holy Spirit told him to go with these men and he went. Peter is a person who's open to being uncomfortable for Jesus. And because of that, he was open to the surprises of Jesus. He was willing to be surprised. His confidence wasn't in himself. It was in Jesus and what Jesus was going to do in the situation. 
One of my favorite books on kind of inviting people to know Jesus is called Beyond Awkward, which is just a great name. Uh, and the author of it's a guy named Bo Crescetto, and he wrote this. I'm not encouraging you to hope that God will show up, but to hope in the God who shows up. Your hope is in the resurrected Jesus creating kingdom moments out of nothing. I want you to be the kind of person that says, I want to go wherever Jesus calls me because I want to be where he is moving. Your hope is in the resurrected Jesus creating kingdom moments out of nothing. That's pretty amazing. Our hope isn't in like this vague thought that if we do these things, then Jesus will show up. Our hope, our trust, our faith is in the fact that we believe that Jesus has already showed up and we're just following him to where he's pointing us to. That's what we're relying on. Peter went because he placed his hope, his confidence in a Jesus who is already working in the life of Cornelius. And so with that, he said, okay, I'm willing to go where you're asking me to go. He didn't know how this was going to end. He didn't know who Cornelius was other than he was loved by all the Jewish people in Caesarea, but he was willing to go. And the astonishing thing is that Cornelius wasn't just ready, but he like laid out the best spread that you could possibly have in this type of an encounter. Look at verse 24. Cornelius was expecting them and had to call together his relatives and his close friends. If you're willing to let the Holy Spirit send you, if you're willing to invite, if you're willing to talk to people about what Jesus is doing in your life, be prepared for them to be willing to listen. Cornelius didn't just, I mean, Cornelius didn't know anything about Peter. We read what the angel told him. Like, it's super vague. There are not many details. He basically just said, call this guy named Peter and he'll tell you stuff. And so then Cornelius gets on his phone not really, but kind of. And he calls all of his friends and all of his family member, and he tells them, this guy named Peter's coming to my house, and he's from Joppa, and I've never met him, but he's going to tell us something really good. So you all need to come over to our house so that you can be here when he arrives, so you can be ready to hear what it is that he's going to say. And he fills out his house with all of these people, everybody that he loves and cares about, he invites over to his house. Jesus is speaking to people surprising people, people we do not even realize, recognize that he's speaking to. And if we're willing to share, be ready for them to be excited to hear about what Jesus has done in your life. Bo Crescetto, who I mentioned just a minute ago, he tells this story about talking with his dad about him finding Jesus. He found Jesus when he was a freshman in college. Uh, so he's young. He hadn't been around the church hardly at all when he went home. Uh, for his first break in his freshman year of college. So he'd been at school for like two months. And he goes home and he's sitting watching a game with his dad and he starts telling his dad about everything that's going on in his life. He's telling him about his, you know, his classes, telling him about sports, and then he starts to tell him about Jesus. He's not like trying to tell him about Jesus. He's just telling him what's going on in his life. And his dad does this surprising thing. His dad turns off the game when he starts talking about Jesus. And he looks at him and he's like, tell me some more. And so then he just starts sharing what Jesus has changed in his heart and how much the love of Jesus has meant to him just in these two short months. 
And as he's sharing this with his dad, his dad reaches across the table, he grabs his arm, and he says, son, if you're going to heaven, I want to go to heaven too. And right then and there, one month into following Jesus, he leads his dad to follow Jesus at their kitchen table. He did not have anything polished. He just simply told him about the change that had happened in his life. He did what we see Peter do. Sometimes we think of these people in the Bible giving these huge polished arguments for why to have faith in Jesus. But if you look at it, he just talks about Jesus. Look at verse 34. Then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel, announcing the good news of peace through Jesus, who is Lord of all. And then he continues on and he tells him all about Jesus and what Jesus did when he was on earth with them and how that changed his life dramatically. These guys aren't worried about the fine points of what it looks like to follow Jesus for 15 years. They're not worried about making sure that they get the entire gospel narrative within a five-minute conversation. They're simply intently focused on the fact that Jesus came and that that reality has changed their life so powerfully that they have no choice but to share it with other people because they want other people to be aware of what Jesus' love can do in their lives. And so they begin to share. Sometimes we get up trying to share something other than just the simple details of who Jesus is and what he wants to do in our lives. But the examples that we get are share Jesus and let that be powerful enough to change other people. If you're passionate about Jesus, then you're going to want to talk about him, right? You're going to want to share. You don't need to, to study up for that conversation. When you're passionate about something, it just naturally comes out. So share what you're passionate about. Stop worrying about how to sneak it into conversations. Don't be focused on saying the, right, the correct argument that will beat every single objection that somebody will ever have. Tell people about how your life has been changed. Tell people about how the love of Jesus has wrecked your life in such a powerful way that there is no choice for you but to continue on with Jesus no matter what he puts in your path down the road because you would never even think of wanting to go back to what your life was before Jesus because it's so much better now, because the reality that you know is so much better than the reality that you knew then. Tell people about that, and then get ready to welcome unexpected people into the kingdom of God, into the church, because they're going to want to have happen to them what they're seeing God has done to you. If you're sharing that with them, they're going to be excited. They're going to want that reality in their own life because the Holy Spirit's going to move. It's not because you did something amazing. It's because the Holy Spirit's already working in their life. Listen to this, verse 44. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on Gentiles. For they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Then Peter said, surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water. 
They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus. And then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. When the Holy Spirit fell, when Peter talked to these Gentiles in the home of an unlikely Roman centurion, you know who was shocked by what happened? The followers of Jesus. You know, friends, I pray that every single one of us will be shocked and awed by the way that Jesus works through us in the lives of people that we never expected him to work through us in their lives. That we'll be shocked by the amount of power that he shows in changing people that we had no idea he ever wanted to change or that he was going to change. When the Holy Spirit comes, he changes people dramatically and in ways that we didn't expect because it wasn't in the right spot, it wasn't at the right time, it wasn't through the right people, it wasn't with the right words, whatever it is. When the Holy Spirit comes, something happens, and we will be surprised by it. One last quote for today. Jay Pathak is a pastor, and he wrote that if you have a relationship with Jesus, then he is living out his story through you. Once you have a clear sense of how God is moving in your life, you have an active way to share your faith. It won't be a canned sales pitch but rather a powerful demonstration of God's activity in your life now. Once you have a clear sense of how God is moving in your life, you know what to share with people. How many of us have had Jesus move in our lives? You know what to share with people. You don't need to go to a class. Just share that reality of what Jesus has already done. And I would encourage you, pay attention to what Jesus is doing in your life today and how he's changing you today, because that's a powerful testimony as well for people to hear. If you're willing, if you're waiting on the Holy Spirit, if you're listening for the leading of Jesus, you will see people changed in the exact same ways that you have been changed by Jesus. And you'll be shocked and in awe of the way that he moves in their life. Church, we want to be a church that welcomes simply because we've been welcomed. We want to be a church that invites because somebody invited us. We want to be a church that is passionate about Jesus because we have been passionately changed by Jesus. Because our lives look different now than they did before. And we want to share that reality with those around us. We want people to know the same love that we have experienced. We invite because we love. We love Jesus and we love those around us. The worship team wants to come back up. Now I want to invite you guys to stand as we transition. And I want to pray for us. I think there's no better prayer to kind of transition us to worship following this than to pray for the unexpected people in our lives. We all have people in our lives who we would love to see Jesus touch, who we, if we're being honest, don't think that it's possible. So let's pray for those people. Let's pray for people to be dramatically touched by the Holy Spirit in ways that will shock us. Pray with me. Jesus, we just thank you for your power in our lives. We thank you for the, the way that you have touched us, that you have changed us, that you have made us completely different than we were before. And right now, Jesus, I pray for, for people like Cornelius that are in our lives. Some that we know about, others maybe that we don't know about. 
people that you're pointing us to, that you're leading us to, God. Give us courage to share what we're passionate about with them. Give us courage to share how you've changed our lives and how you're changing our lives today, how you're making us different right now, the things that we're working through day in and day out in the way that your love has made it possible. Lord, I pray that you will shock us by the stories of how you've already been working in these people's lives. By the stories of how you have been doing work behind the scenes for months and years to bring people to the place of knowing you. We thank you that it's not about us, but it's about your love reaching down and changing us. It's about your love making us different. And we pray that those around us will know your love that they'll be changed by your love, Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen.